0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and I'd like to welcome to this podcast Dr. Faina Linkoff, who is an associate professor of medicine in the departments of OBGYN, reproductive science, and epi- epidemiology. Dr. Linkoff, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: So I know that your interest is in, in cancer and gynecological cancers in particular. Perhaps you can elaborate on that and share a little bit of your focus and your interests.
1: So my main focus of my work is endometrial cancer epidemiology and specifically molecular epidemiology approaches to endometrial cancer prevention and control. I became interested in this area about nine years ago when I joined faculty of University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. At the time, I had several projects in different cancer sites, including ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, thyroid, head and neck, and a few others, and I wasn't quite sure as to what will be the focus of my work for the next five to ten years. At the time, I thought that I wanted to work in the area where we can make the most difference. And that's how I picked endometrial cancer, because endometrial cancer is very sensitive to obesity. And in the past 20 years, we in the U.S. experienced increasing epidemic of obesity. So with that epidemic, endometrial cancer became a huge problem. And I thought that endometrial cancer would be the area where we can work, we can do a lot of useful research, and where we can make a difference.
0: So if I understand correctly, your primary focus is on prevention as opposed to treatment or cures, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. And the primary area of my focus is prevention of endometrial cancer through weight loss, uh, which can be achieved with bariatric surgery, which is a weight loss surgery.
0: So I'm sure there's uh, some relationship between the amount of one is overweight and the increased probability of... To getting these types of cancers, is, is is that relationship been quantified or is it a qualitative relationship?
1: Uh, that relationship has been quantified, and it's a really good question. So it's a linear relationship. So with every BMI point that you gain, which is extra, your risk goes up. So for somebody who has a body mass index of 42 or 45, which is class 3 obesity, the risk is elevated approximately 13 to 15 fold.
0: Wow, that's significant. So, is age a factor as well, or is it probably predominantly a matter of uh, overweight?
1: It's both. So aging is a big risk factor for almost any kind of cancer. So aging plays a big role in endometrial cancer as well. But BMI is the biggest risk factors or out of all established risk factors for endometrial cancer.
0: So I understand that one of your focus areas is looking at tumor markers to monitor interventions in terms of the risk of cancer. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, please?
1: Yes. uh, So uh, with my collaborators, we published uh, several biomarker studies, so one that I could highlight here was my collaboration with Dr. Lokshan, who is the head of the Luminex Core Facility at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. And we published a case control study looking at the serum markers for people with endometrial cancer, and we identified a panel of markers that could potentially predict the risk. So that work has been published about seven or eight years ago, and as a result of that work, I started developing other biomarker studies. But my studies after that, they mostly focus on populations that were healthy, such as people who did not have cancer and underwent dramatic weight loss, basically experience through bariatric surgery. So, so we looked at biomarkers over time for people who are losing the weight.
0: So in terms of the, uh, the biomarkers, is Some biomarkers are complicated and expensive to monitor and others are are less so. The ones that are of interest are applicable for your particular studies. Are these easy to, to track and monitor and measure?
1: Uh, They're becoming easier and easier to monitor because now we are very fortunate in this day and age to have access to high throughput technologies. So a lot of uh, markers that I looked at with my collaborators, uh, they were based on Luminex technologies, uh, which are high throughput technologies with more than 100 markers that you can measure immediately in a very small sample. Uh, we also did more traditional markers that are expensive to measure, such as something like P10, which is based on immunohistochemistry.
0: So are any of these uh, used clinically at this time, or is this still experimental?
1: Most of the markers that we looked at, other than probably P10 and estrogen and progesterone, they're still research, not clinically used yet.
0: As with the, many of the scientists and physicians that we talked to, sometimes the the lead time from where they are to when a particular therapy or assessment technology is ready for prime time, that could be a significant time lapse. What's the general feeling in terms of what you're looking at or when it might be ready for prime time?
1: It's very difficult to tell. Research moves really, really slowly. In fact, I did some research for my dissertation about scientific productivity. And in general, it takes at least five years for discoveries to go from lab to classroom or to practice or even more than five years. So I don't have exact predictions as to when this particular work will be clinically available. But I suspect that depending on the direction of my work, it could take anywhere from probably five to ten years.
0: Which is fairly typical in my so I was looking at some of your publications and one I noticed was that you did some work with some colleagues on associations between parasite growth factor and fiberglass growth factor and as this relates to survival and endometrial cancer. Can you share a little bit of detail about that please?
1: Uh, so that work was done as a part of um, our general um, work direction to identify what is the risk factor for endometrial cancer mortality and what can be done to predict uh, what kind of patients will die or not die of the disease. So, and we published on some biomarkers that either predicted or not predicted that mortality.
0: So Dr. Lincock, I know that uh, you've uh, had some interest in some activities in the application and use of adipose-derived stem cells. Can you uh, share with us uh, some of that activity, please?
1: Yes. It's a wonderful endeavor that we started about five years ago after I met with Dr. Peter Rubin and Dr. Casey Mara. What they told us about in one of the bariatric surgery seminars is the work that they've been doing with adipose-derived stem cells. Basically, what happens during the bariatric surgery and during the endometrial cancer surgery is that there is a big amount of adipose tissue that is being discarded, and adipose tissue is a fat tissue. So what I thought is that At this point, we have been looking for the biomarker for endometrial cancer, but we have not found it yet in the systemic serum or plasma uh, depots. However, I thought that if endometrial cancer patients are mostly obese, then maybe there is something about their adipose tissues that could tell us a little bit more about their disease or the risk for the development of endometrial cancer. So what we propose to Dr. Rubin and Dr. Mara is to work jointly to look at the adipose tissues of endometrial cancer patients in comparison with healthy controls to see if there is something about those tissues that is different. So we published two papers recently. One is a review paper about the role of adipose-derived stem cells uh, in uh, cancer development. It's Just a couple of days ago, it's been published in Cancer Research, which is a very nice journal with an impact factor of 8, I think. And then another paper we published was focusing on the lab work where we took the Ishikawa cell line, which is endometrial cancer cell line, and we cultured that on the medium that came from adipose-derived stem cells. And that culture look was growing faster on that adipose-derived stem cell media, suggesting that there may be something about the adipose-derived stem cells in endometrial cancer patients that is different from healthy controls.
0: So the paper that was just published in terms of the effect or impact of adipose stem cells, perhaps could you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yes. So we took adipose tissues from several endometrial cancer patients, and then we isolated adipose-derived stem cells from those tissues, And then we took the Ishikawa cell line, and Ishikawa cell line is endometrioid endometrial cancer cell line, typically associated with excess adiposity. So we took that cell line, and we let it grow on the media that came from adipose-derived stem cell of cancer patient in comparison with control media, and it grew faster on the adipose-derived stem cell medium. So, So small study, yeah, based on probably seven patients.
0: So let me let me show my lack of knowledge about this. But you're growing cells on some type of a culture, and then you grow the same cells on adipose-derived tissue. Is that correct?
1: On media that is coming out from the growth of adipose-derived stem cells.
0: So the, the, the presumption is that uh, all things are equal except for the fact that you have the uh, adipose-derived yes that is from an obese patient, or an, actually a patient who has endometrial cancer. Mm-hmm. So there, you, you have a, a cause-and-effect relationship.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Very interesting. So, so what's the next step? Is a bigger data set? Or?
1: So we're trying to figure figure out how to get access to bigger data sets and bigger tissue sets to replicate this study. Because as I mentioned, even though we published the study, it's a small sample size. So we, I'm afraid, cannot say that this is generalizable to the entire population of endometrial cancer patients without confirming those results in a larger investigation. So, and this is the focus of my funding seeking initiatives is to try to get this funded and we take it one step further.
0: Certainly you've made a significant step so far. We wish you well as you try to make the next step in this uh, pathway to perhaps a, a very important finding. So Dr. Linkov, I know that you work with uh, many other collaborators. Uh, I trust that there is an important part of the team as well.
1: Yes, my work would not have been possible without my collaborators, and that includes doctors Rubin, Mara, and Kokai at the McGowan Institute and Department of Plastic Surgery, but also the team that I'm collaborating with at McGee Women's Research Institute, including Department of OBGYN and the Division of Gynecologic Oncology, and also the Bariatric Surgery Group. And I also wanted to thank the individuals and the foundations that provided funding to make this project possible, and that includes American Cancer Society, the SCAE Foundation, the Hellman Foundation, and various other sources, including my startup package.
0: Very interesting, and uh, I think many of our listeners to this podcast series now recognize the uh, the importance of a multidisciplinary team addressing these problems, and You've clearly delineated that you have a multidisciplinary team for your endeavors as well. So with uh, that, uh, I would like to uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast. We will provide a link uh, on the podcast site to uh, Dr. Linkov's website if somebody has interest in further exploring her studies. Uh, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And also, to remind our listeners, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you again, and we welcome our listeners to join us for the next podcast. Have a good day.
1: Thank you.